The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. That evening for dinner, Mother cooked spaghetti and meatballs with tomato sauce. I am glad to see there will be enough for second helpings, said Father, because spaghetti and meatballs is one of my favorite dishes. Spaghetti and meatballs is a favorite with everybody, said Mother. Try a little spaghetti, Gloria. Ooh, said Gloria, and tried the spaghetti. Frances looked down at her plate and saw that there was no spaghetti and meatballs on it. There was a slice of bread and a jar of jam. Frances began to cry. My goodness, said Mother. Frances is crying. What is the matter? asked Father. Frances looked down at her plate and sang a little sad song. She sang so softly that Mother and Father could scarcely hear her. What I am is tired of jam. Mm-hmm. That's a passage from Bread and Jam for Francis by Russell and Lillian Hoban. And did you recognize the father's voice? None other than Arnold Lobel, author of the Frog and Toad books. Amazing. I used to listen to that 1973 record over and over on the living room floor in my parents' house, on the food blanket, the old Hungarian blanket that washed easily and protected our carpet from the crumbs and spills of graham crackers and milk after school, pancakes and maple syrup during Saturday morning cartoons, and Johnny Cakes with Butter on Sunday nights. How about you, dear listener? Are you hungry, intrigued, enlightened, or just in some kind of reflective mood? That's good. We're looking at food and literature with our special guest, novelist Ronica Dar, today on The History of of literature. Okay, here we go. Let's get started. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. Guess what? We're starting an exciting new promotion here on the History of Literature. We're going to be giving away prizes to Patreon donors. This month, those of you who've signed up on patreon.com slash literature, either now or sometime in the past, will be eligible for a drawing. We're giving away a History of Literature mug, perfect for coffee, tea, water, whatever you like to drink, wine, I don't know what you put in the mug, any liquid fits in there, and many solids too. Like gruel, if you count that literary food. Oliver Twistwood. He'd fill it up and ask for more. And we're giving away a book by today's guest, Ronica Dar, her novel Bijou Roy, which is excellent. So sign up now at patreon.com slash literature. And may the prize winning begin. I wish you all the best of luck. And as always, my thanks to all of our Patreon donors who help keep this show going. So, I don't need that our topic today needs... I don't... (laughs) Sorry. I don't know that our topic today needs a long introduction. What could be more essential than food? 
What could be more essential or more prominent in literature? Not many things. Love, maybe. Death. Friendship. Childhood. The weather. Nature, defined broadly. Food's right up there. But how is it used? What does it do? And what have our best literary minds done with it? We'll look at all of that today as Ronica and I struggle to narrow the field and select 10 great examples of food in literature. That's coming up today on the show after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So in preparing for this, I read a New Yorker article that pointed out that one of the rudest things you can do is stare at someone eating. And this is true in a wide range of cultures. And it reminded me of a time when I was at a wedding and there were disposable cameras on the table. And this woman who was seated at my table kept taking pictures of me just as I was putting food in my mouth. And then she'd laugh. I think she thought she was flirting, but I wanted to take the camera from her and smash it on the floor. And yet, as the New Yorker article points out, in literature, we can watch the food being prepared and served and eaten. We're given this privileged view and we're often given a very intimate access. We get this with love and affection and very deep emotional ties, and it's a great topic for today's show. And joining me to take a look at food and literature is our old friend Ronica Dar, novelist and, well, what what should we call you now, Ronica? Literary entrepreneur? <laughs> Wide-ranging woman of letters? How about that Renaissance woman? <laughs> <laughs> Ronica is the author of the novel Bijou Roy, which everyone should read, and joins us today to help me choose 10 of the best or most interesting examples of food in literature. Ronica Dar, welcome back to the History of Literature. I'm so happy to be here and so proud of how the show has taken off, John. Oh, well, thank you. That's uh, <laughs> It has been very exciting indeed. So today our topic is food in literature. We're going to alternate picks, five each, and make the case for them. I actually think there's a clear number one, and so I'm going to let you go first and take it. Jack, when I was thinking about what I would choose for this topic, there were five books that came to mind immediately. And the first one, of course, is an obvious choice among literature fans, Proust. Yes. Uh, in Swan's Bay, the 
classic moment where, you know, the story begins almost entirely based on the taste of a piece of cookie. Mm. An old Madeleine. Yes. Dipped in tea. Dipped in tea. And it's hard to talk about food and literature without talking about tea and wine in literature. Yeah. No, it's, it, they go together. But this is one of those poetic, rhapsodic moments of Proust that opens the story and everything that comes after unfolds from this very lovely moment in which he has been offered a cup of tea in, in lousy weather. It's not his usual habit. He drinks it and there's a little bit of the Madeleine cookie crumb in it that he tastes. And it just catalyzes everything for him mm. um, in terms of the rest of the story. And when you when you talked about food and the deep emotional ties, here it is. And in almost all my picks, I'll give it away now. Love, romantic love is is enmeshed with mm. appetite. Oh, interesting. I think I have a mm-hmm. few that don't have that. So I'll be a that'll be a good contrast. Right. Well, and again, I was reminded how all all our favorite books often are just self-portraits altogether. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot about my own appetites and inclinations. Oh, <laughs> said. It is such yeah. a good moment in the book. And, you know, I think a lot of people are, I think, intimidated by Proust and just the length of it and the length of the sentences. And it's just hard to even jump in. But really, if you just tell yourself you're going to take on Swan's Way, and maybe right. the second volume as well. And you just take it in smaller pieces. It really is an incredible book. The moment with the Madeleine is just uh, astonishing. It's It deserves all of the fame that it's gotten. And okay. what I love about it is the way that it captures and reflects the entire novel, the entire work, the entire project <laughs> of the work. It It really is this book about recalling lost time or remembrance of things past. And the Madeleine is, stands for this ability that we, or this, this phenomenon that I think we've all felt, which is you smell something or you taste something or you hear a song, popular music song or something, and instantly you're transported back and you feel it. You feel it throughout your body, how visceral the memory is of where you were and what you were thinking and all of the emotions that were running through you at that moment. And Proust describes it so well, and it's so important to the book. It really is uh, more than just a cookie crumb. More than that. Can I read the, the, a bit of the passage? Yeah, that'd be great. I love how he describes the physical response to, um, so he, he takes the bite, the mouthful of tea, and then a delicious pleasure had invaded me, isolated me, without my having any notion as to its cause. It had immediately rendered the vicissitudes of life unimportant to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory, acting in the same way that love acts by filling me with a precious essence. Or rather, this essence was not merely inside me, it was me. I had ceased to feel mediocre, contingent mortal. Where could it have come to me from this powerful joy? I sensed that it was connected to the taste of the tea and the cake, but that it went infinitely far beyond that could not be of the same nature. Where did it come from? What did it mean? How could I grasp it, etc.? And he goes for the second mouthful. But that that feeling of satiety comes Mm. up over and over again, what that does to us. And it's 
physical, it's neurological, it's, it's in every cell of our body. We're feeding ourselves, right? So yeah. I love it. You know, there's probably some chemistry in here that I'm missing too. <laughs> right. And it invaded him and isolated him. It's so perfect. Yeah. Oh, so perfect. <laughs> That's so the thing. Perfect. I mean, even though the sentences are so long, it's there will just be one word included that gives you so much to think about and so much to admire in what he's setting out to do that the clauses and it, it doesn't ever feel well i guess it does feel a little bit wordy or verbose but it it never it always felt so rich to me it never felt like it was just piled on and you know here's yet another description of x it always felt so carefully wrought that i uh, i never got bored reading proust no, and when I share the my quote from Hemingway, I actually found that more repetitive. And isn't that on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of in terms of language and technique? Right. But even on that note, the way he describes the petite Madeleine in the original French, you know, they are shaped like scallops. And in the original, um, which I which I struggle with, but really appreciate. And if anyone can read French, read the read Proust in French. It's the best mm. way to capture the of his prose. Although Lydia Davis's translation does a marvelous job. But in both of the translations that I read, they describe the cookie as having been molded in the grooved valve of a scallop shell. So in the original French, he, he describes it comme une coquille de Saint-Jacques. So it's entirely, it's still a scallop, but it's a very particular scallop that pilgrims <laughs> used on their pilgrimage. <laughs> And so it brings in all this history oh, and culture. Right. And then later, you know, far, I won't, much, much later in the book, it all kind of, there's a, a moment where it all, the shells come back, the seashells and the women and the food, et cetera. But this even, and that's hundreds of pages later, but this even is a precursor to that, like how mm. everything unfolds in this book. Amazing. Yeah. And he is like a pilgrim and his, shrine and his destination is his own past and his memories of it. Right. Beautiful. In that very complicated way in which we can go back and forth and time travel because of food and shared recipes that comes up later too. Yep. Okay, well that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Veronica. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we could almost end there. Just Proust at the Madeleine. <laughs> Or maybe we should do a whole hour on it. Anyway, let's go to my number one. And I figured you would take Proust, so I wanted to stick with that theme. So I chose uh, another example of food where it's a metaphor or an emblem for what's happening in the novel. And I chose the uh, hearty beef French stew that Mrs. Ramsay is watching being prepared for her party in To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. And this is, you know, she's she's making this party. Her cook has been preparing this stew for three days. And she's Mrs. Ramsey is the party is really on her mind. And, and it's not just uh, what her party, what she expects it to be. But we're also seeing her stream of consciousness. And then we see her look at the buff on Daba. And I'll describe, I'll read the, the passage here and then I'll talk about it for a second. And she peered into the dish with its shiny walls and its confusion of savory brown and yellow meats and its bay leaves and its wine and thought, 
This will celebrate the occasion. A curious sense rising in her, at once freakish and tender, of celebrating a festival. And it's, end quote. And it's just the anticipation of the party, the relief that she feels when something is done correctly, the anxiety <laughs> she has that it might not come together, and the delicate nature of it all coming together. And it just encapsulates her state of mind. And it's, it's not just the comforting nature of it being so savory and aromatic and perfect, but there's these under, undercurrents of discord and possible conflict swirling around. It's like the party as she expects it to be, but also it's like her own stream of consciousness, the way it blends dissonant emotions together. And I just love that it connects, the stream of consciousness connects with the party connects with the novel, connects with the food, and it's all kind of tied together. And, and we see that what we're reading about this beef stew is one of the major themes that we're supposed to take from this novel as we're reading it. Right. I love the the idea of it being a festival. Yeah. Right? Like, how can you have a festival without the feast and the food? Yeah. <sighs> and that it's the confusion of meats and the <laughs> sense freakish and tender, which is freakish and <laughs> which is just great. Well, the responsibility of the cook too is is a, yeah, it's a right it's a heavy role to feed people. That's a very <laughs> heavy role. <laughs> yeah, and then she's been making it for three days. <laughs> three days. Important to get it right. Okay, so what's your number two? Uh, well, I actually would like to talk about The Hobbit, which mm. I just caught up with Tolkien um, yep. at the tender age of 44 last year <laughs> and and loved The Hobbit so much. I think Proust was a kind of hobbit in some ways. I know I certainly am. And I really, for me, just the, the very literal descriptions of The Hobbit's appetites and diets and meals and feasts. And then, of course, in contrast with when they are so very hungry uh, on their journey, um, I love that all. I loved that the story opens with a feast, mm. um, the unexpected party. And, and although some critics have said that it's a very mid-century English diet these hobbits are consuming, so Gandalf shows up and hopes that there is enough food for all. He himself, of course, wants a bit of wine. Mm. And, and here are the foods right away that, that are requested, and it made me so happy to eat this. Raspberry jam, apple tart, mince pies, cheese, pork pie, salad, more cakes, ale, coffee if you don't mind, and then some eggs, and don't forget the cold chicken and pickles, etc., etc. Mm. I love reading just like that very, there it is, and I have something to, to snack on while I'm reading, just thinking about it. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I'm also a chronic muncher sometimes when I'm reading. Yeah. To have this like this, this characterization of these people as avid eaters, how that characterizes anybody as a as a good person. There's this great description of Ven. Um let me just find it. Okay, so here's the quote that I wanted to share. Uh it's a description of Elrond, who is the master of the of the elf lord he is. And it describes his house as perfect but whether you liked food or sleep or work or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, mm. evil things come into that valley. Resonated with me, again, with the Proust, thinking of Proust and sitting and thinking and 
yeah. singing and storytelling, all of it. Music comes up over and over again whenever we're talking about these foodies in literature. Right. Right. The comfort, the pleasures of food, the feasting together. Yeah. A whole chapter entitled Roast Mutton, in which, of course, not to give too much away, <laughs> I think everyone knows, you know, those who have just feasted are now potentially going to be feasted upon. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that eater be eaten, we're all here in the natural world. I think that is my, my greatest takeaway from Tolkien was just the immersion and his his tremendous skill in describing the natural world as we're passing through it. Right. And right. and made me think differently about how what we eat is part of that and how we are not so other <laughs> not so other from what we're eating. Right. <laughs> Right. I did not take any instances of cannibalism, although I had thought about it. <laughs> you know, I thought of the Shakespeare, Titus sure, Andronicus. And, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I'll take my number two. It is also a feast. And I was actually, I probably would have taken James Joyce's The Dead, the, the dinner the that dead. they're having I there at the celebration. Yes, yeah. Yes. But I've talked about that quite a bit when we did the, I did a a two-part episode on the dead. So I wanted to take something else. And another feast, again, this, like The Hobbit, it stands for food as a celebration and a symbol of home and safety and resolution. And in this case, it's kind of a happily ever after feast where the food is sort of a reward. And that is The Feast at the End of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And this, yeah, I, th I thought Dickens was good because to really get the feeling of how great a feast is, you kind of have to dig deep into the poverty and hunger like, yeah. like yeah. Dickens could do. So it wasn't just a, a feast of a king who is, you know, engorging himself, but it's a family that has been so deprived and they've had this, you know, physical hunger and then to mm -hmm. to match that with Scrooge's spiritual hunger, it all kind of comes together in this Christmas feast. It, I like the feasts also from the 19th century where you get this quieter time. You know, there's no television or radio and all you have is storytelling and conversation and the family and and love. And the fire. And the fire. Yeah, exactly. And here's here's the description of what they have at, at the feast uh, in A Christmas Carol. Quote, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch. Which is... <laughs> It's just such a great, such a great feast, and it just feels like oh, this this family that's been so bruised and battered, and there's mm -hmm. Tiny Tim, and now they get to celebrate Christmas as if they're you know going to to live like aristocrats or kings instead of the paupers that they are. We really could do an, uh, an entire other episode on, on the absence of food and literature, because I too thought Dickens would be a good one. I was mm. always asking for the, the yeah. porridge, and it was not about abundance and feasting in the way that the text that first came to mind, but yeah. I love <laughs> <laughs> hunger. Hey, what did you have for number three? Well, I'm torn between going 
one of two directions. Let's let's stick with this idea of the violent hunger pangs. <laughs> okay. When you are hungry, I'm going to talk about Haruki Murakami's short story, The Second Bakery Attack, mm. which is a text that I loved teaching in, in my high school classrooms and for many years because it's a, a lovely story, very well crafted at every level, but uh, centers on a, a young couple, newlyweds in modern Tokyo, who wake up in the middle of the night. They've been married hardly two weeks, and they are struck with these violent hunger pangs. Mm. And facing that, that, that very empty, hollow, don't know how they're going to ever not feel hungry again, which is compounded by opening the fridge to see nothing in there that qualifies as food. They have um, some butter, some baking soda, some French dressing, and some onions in the fridge. <laughs> right. So they're just sitting there like, "How? what are we going to do? You know, we've all faced that dilemma. And I will say that Murakami, I think, writes about food a lot in all of his work. He has this great line from Norwegian Wood, it's good when food tastes good. It's kind of like proof you're alive. Mm. Also yeah. in this in the story, the food... Okay, so eventually they do find a few butter cookies, sort of a parallel to the Madeleines, and they eat the crumbs of those, and they're still not sated. And then the story unfolds, and, and I love how the wife is characterized, especially, and these notions about what their modern marriage is going to look like. Mm. It's just wonderful. A very positive, um, sort of, you know, both partners very equal in this relationship and, and what they learn from, from the ensuing adventures. But the food in that and those, that feeling of, of how hungry he is and his brilliant metaphors about it and then how that resolves towards the end of the story and, and the description of what it is, again, what it feels like to, to not be empty anymore. When yeah. you are when you're full and sated and that is and that is happiness. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. Hunger is is a such a a change agent and such a driving force. Uh, you'll hear that mm -hmm. in hypotheticals all the time where people will say, Oh well it's it's wrong to steal and then the hypothetical is, Well, what if your kids are hungry? What if it's someone what if it's a mm -hmm. a parent stealing food to feed their children and and we all kind of recognize, oh yeah, those exceptions might be made for people who are hungry because uh it's it's survival, but it's it's also this we know how overwhelming hunger can be and, and how you would do anything to stop it. I'm uh, just, I'm sorry. I'm just sad now. <laughs> put, don't, don't put that in. Just like edit that silence right out. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, when so you said, cold, no one wants to be cold and hungry. That's yeah. It. You know, when I'm you, cold. <laughs> <laughs> when you mentioned the baker, the first thing that jumped into my mind was the uh, Raymond Carver story, which I feel I kind of regret that I didn't select because a small good thing where they have the birthday cake for the boy. Oh. The parents have the birthday cake for the boy and they keep getting the call from the baker saying it's ready. It's an interesting use of food in a way that isn't really about eating the food. It's really about uh, a cake as a as a symbol of a party or a symbol of love or growth. And the way that that gets undermined in the Carver story is, is, uh, is interesting. I kind of wish I had taken it, but 
Uh, for my number three, I did want to take something from children's literature. I think you were getting at this a bit with The Hobbit, that children know food, they love food, and there's something fantastic about watching a really small child discover foods for the first time, like the first time they ever eat ice cream or the first time they ever eat chocolate or something sweet and their their taste buds are, are so young and and uh, and green, so to speak. And they just light up when they feel that, you know, like, oh, this is <laughs> this. I haven't I haven't ever had something this sweet before. I love it. It's awesome. Oh, uh, love it. My my one of my nieces at my birthday recently had her first bit of angel food cake with ice cream and all of that. And she just kept screaming, I love this cake, mommy. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think authors, children's authors have a lot of fun with this. Uh, there's just some beautiful examples of like Alice's tea parties. And one of my mm-hmm. favorite books as a kid, Bread and Jam for Francis. And there's my the... favorite book oh, with a chance of meatballs. With oh, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. That was my favorite. That was your favorite. So I never really liked uh, that book. I wrote it down here uh, because I recognize its power. I know kids uh, love it. You know, it's food falling from the sky. It's like two things it's they know: <laughs> food it's and weather. Huge. Yeah, <laughs> and food and weather for a kid—they're both mysterious, but it's both something that they understand you know they instinctively get it what food and weather are but yet they don't know how any of it happens or how it works and then here it's combined in this surprising way i just found it kind of disgusting uh that they were you know spaghetti they were having to wade their way through spaghetti and stuff so (laughs) it was not one of my favorites i was sort of a a genteel little kid (laughs) i was neat but i was terrified by the addiction that Edmund had to Turkish delight in the Narnia books, the way the witch would uh-huh. manipulate him with that. Recently, I had Butterbeer at Harry Potter's World in Orlando, uh, which oh. is another. There's some great foods in Harry Potter. There's Paddington's Marmalade. There's Pippi Longstocking's Pancakes, which she makes by throwing the egg in the air and letting it crack into the bowl. <laughs> and Rolled Doll probably deserves his whole entire episode just for the food in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with all of the the inventive kinds of candy. Uh, here's one. Speaking of cannibalism, sort of, uh, <laughs> Peter Rabbit, whose father was baked into a pie by Mrs. McGregor. Do you remember that um, part of the Peter Rabbit story? That's pretty dramatic. Yeah. I never really liked Peter Rabbit. No, I was, I was on Amelia Bedelia. Ah. <laughs> I think the Icing the fish with chocolate frosting. <laughs> <laughs> Silly Amelia. So I, uh, I didn't choose any of those. The choice I okay. chose, I think, is even more primal, which is... The Hungry Hungry Caterpillar? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, that would have been a good one. Uh, I chose Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. Oh, <laughs> Of yeah, course. such a great book. It's, it's got it's that great, great message. One. Yeah, of, you know, you should try things. You know, a lot of kids books have that message of you try it and you might like it is is this message. And it's got that repetition, which gets kind of old for adults, but kids 
never seemed to get tired of it. And my oldest son, I think I read this book to him more than 1,000 times. Um, and that's that's a conservative estimate. I know we were reading it at least 10 times a day for several months. And he could, it was just as he was starting to talk. It was before he could really talk, but he could say a few words. And he would say, green eggs, ham, green eggs, ham. And I would, you know, I'd read it to him and then I'd, I'd try and get a different book out. And he would just throw that book across the room and say, green eggs, ham. And so once I got so bored, because I would have to read it over and over and over, like just end it, turn back to page one and start over, over and over, all through lunch hour, all through bedtime. And so I made the mistake. I was getting so bored. I made the mistake of reading it in this, in a different voice. And I would, I'd sort of grumbled it and I was, you know, I do not like them, Sam, I am. And then I would start reading in my normal voice and he would just shake his head and he'd, and then he'd grunt and grumble himself, you know, (laughs) as a way of telling me that I had to do the voice. So I would have to read the whole book, you know, in that voice. And yeah, but even then, even though I should probably hate the book by now, I still like it. And I like how Green Eggs and Ham is just different enough but just familiar enough that it it's sort of a stand-in for any kind of new food or any kind of new experience. And you can always point to it with the kids and say, oh, well, you're, you're a little bit afraid of this. It's unfamiliar to you. But do you remember how, you know, the green eggs and ham, he ends up liking it and likes it in a house and likes it with a mouse or whatever it is. And uh, <laughs> it's just... Uh, it's. It, I think it's probably my favorite Dr. Seuss book. Awesome. Oh, okay. he write about food? There's other ones. I'm trying to remember, I don't. I can't <sighs> think of a single. One. Yeah, none Red are coming fish. to mind. There probably no. is here and there. It's hard to write a whole book without. Like I think authors, even though uh, sex is something that's also you know you'd expect to find it in the oldest literature and you do in Gilgamesh, you know, you, you think of things that we, that human beings don't live without. And yet you can imagine an author very deliberately saying, okay, I'm going to write this book and it's not going to have a sex scene in it. There will be no right. sex in this book, but nobody right. says that about food. And it, it's sort of, it's hard to write a novel that doesn't have food in it in some way. It's just so much a part of it's like sleep it's so much a part of our lives and just how we make it through the day that it finds its way in even if authors aren't particularly thinking about it but i can't think of would, any other instances in dr seuss yeah i would i always love when i'm doing writing workshops with with students to you know after a few drafts say like did you remember to feed them have you fed your characters what are you eating yeah. <laughs> Ways of getting into character because it's such a rich source of of identity and characterization. Yeah, you know? I think it was John well, Cheever. I think I read a John Cheever letter where he was talking about reading novels, and he would go through, and nobody wanted to write about the weather because everyone was trying to get right to the dialogue and the the characters. And he said he would just page through novel after novel, saying, "What does the sky look like? What where is the sky?" <laughs> <laughs> So 
So the food is good. And it used to be, you know, it used to be there was always coffee and cigarettes. It used to be characters yeah. were always lighting up cigarettes. And now that we don't have that, maybe authors should go back to relying on, um, you know, snack foods and, and little, uh, foods, yeah. little bits of things people are eating. Yeah. Okay. So what are we up to? Number four for you? My fourth one is a, it's just a short little uh, nod to Hemingway's A Movable Feast, mm. which also came to mind quite immediately and, and really quite personally. I'd read that at a time when I was just discovering a lot of that kind of American literature mm-hmm. and interested in way, but also more interested in Paris. Yeah. And when I visited Paris, I actually used much of Hemingway's experience to inform my daily walks and explorations of the city the first time I visited. So it has reason that my final two texts are very sort of very personal connections to both of them. But there's this wonderful description right away. And these are all all my texts sort of open with with a very heavy focus on food, which is like I guess why they came to mind so easily. Mm. But yeah. I love how Hemingway describes his relationship to food as a writer. You know, what he's eating has everything to do with what he's writing in mm. a sense with their mm-hmm. coincidental habits he has. Um, he, he talks later in the, in the memoir about when he's writing, he's roasting chestnuts. By the way, I think that might be one of the most literary foods. Chestnuts yeah. come up in <laughs> almost every text I look at. Um, raspberries, sprigs of tarragon, onions. These oh. are, these are the staples in my text. Um, <laughs> right. That's a, a recipe for something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he, he talks in, in, the, in the opening chapter of the memoir, he talks about how he's writing the story. Uh, it is, of course, enmeshed with this, this. He beholds the sight of a woman who walks into the cafe where he's writing and she sits there and musing on her as well. He writes this story in a big fury. And when he's done, he kind of sits there both sad and happy and orders a dozen oysters. Mm. Um, and I'll read, I'll read that, just a little bit of that passage, okay. the famous one. Um, so he orders a dozen oysters, quote, with their strong taste of the sea and their faint metallic taste that the cold white wine washed away, leaving only the sea taste and the succulent texture. And I did. And as I drank their cold liquid from each shell, and washed it down with the crisp taste of the wine, I lost the empty feeling and began to be happy and to make plans. Mm. Wow, that's great. Right? Just we fill a certain void with, with food, but in a, in a wonderful way. I love how it restores him and his optimism yep. and sense of purpose right there in very clear and simple language. Yeah, and, and it's sort of understated. You know, you, you could say, yeah. and suddenly I felt like I could climb a mountain and and scale walls and get back to my youthful athletic self. And instead, it's just began to make plans, yes. which is also if anyone's been in a, a state of mind where they're unable to even make plans, they know how great it is when you come out of that funk and you're thinking, oh, I feel like I can tackle that the months ahead and make, you know, set goals for myself again and that kind of thing. This is good because I kind of thought you might take uh, something like that 
where someone is traveling and they're eating something local and they're getting into their environment that way and it's reflecting how they feel when they are there. And I took a, a different wrinkle on travel stories and travel literature and I went with food that you connect with home and eating Ooh. it in new surroundings. So it's giving you familiar comforts in a strange place. Mm-hmm. And so much of travel literature is, you know, here's something new and exciting, something exotic, something you should try when you're here. And then it causes the writer to reflect on the country or the continent that they're visiting. But I remember when I went to Taiwan, I I had my fill of dumplings and rice dishes and all of that. But sometimes for breakfast, I would go to McDonald's just to get mm-hmm. pancakes and maple syrup. And it was <laughs> it was this sort of thing of like, I just need to get off to a good start today. And I just can't right. start my day with something new and different. I've got to have something that my body associates with getting the morning started. And right. it reminded me of the times when you go on picnics. I love those scenes when people are on picnics and they're in the woods or they're in some grassy field and all of a sudden, you know, the picnic basket comes out and out comes the wine and the pasta and the fried chicken and all the dishes and suddenly the outdoors doesn't feel so outdoorsy anymore. It's like you've conquered the outdoors and you're going to be safe mm-hmm. and and enjoy yourself and relax with this meal. It's like eating at ski resorts and places like that where you're on the top of a mountain, but you feel like you've accomplished something and yet you're going to have a very familiar kind of meal and food that's going to remind you that everything is going to be okay. So what I decided to choose was the food that they prepare in the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien, where they're on the ship and the captain's cook is always making something that reflects the mood or the desire of the captain. And when the occasion calls for something special, they dig into the the ship's galley or the hold and they come out with these great meals like lobscouse, which is a stew, and spotted dog, which is a suet pudding, and Strasbourg pie, which is foie gras wrapped in bacon and baked in a pie or pickled seal is another one they have when they're on the ship. And all of the the food in the Patrick O'Brien novels are so evocative. And there's one like Miller's, which is actually rats. And the dish they make is Miller's in onion sauce, which almost sounds... Palatable, <laughs> although <laughs> although I think you'd want to eat it with a healthy dose of grog, which is the <laughs> rum mixed with water, and they get a, a daily dose of grog for the shipmates, and they have hardtack, ship's biscuit, and this is a, a recipe <laughs> that I found, which uh, Stephen Metran had to subsist on once when he was stranded, and the dish was called boiled shit. And the recipe was one ounce assorted bird guano, one quarter cup rainwater. And the directions are gather the guano into a large clamshell. Gradually add the water, stirring constantly. Set in the hot sun until it boils. Do not drink unless absolutely desperate. Serves one. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but I just love, but I, what I really love is just the, uh, that dig into the, the storehouse of the ship, you know, and you open up a barrel of something or you, they have coffee or something like that. And it just seems so, uh, like they've thought ahead and planned ahead and they've, they've now are enjoying some kind of special treat that you wouldn't expect to get out there on the ocean, but they're able to put it together thanks to what the, the captain's cook has in his storehouse. And his ingenuity. Right. Yeah. And to be able to, right, to be able to prepare a meal. And often in the books, uh, Jack is, he's too hasty and he doesn't get the cook he needs or he can't wait for the cook to, to make it on ship. And so he's kind of has to make do with somebody who doesn't actually know how to cook. And he's always trying to see if any of the passengers or any of the, you know, any of the deckhands, you know, any of the other crew can cook something for him and it doesn't always work out. And you really feel that loss. You know, you feel that this captain wants to have a nice table that he's going to set out for some guests or he's got an admiral coming on board or another ship that they're rendezvousing with in the ocean and the the other ship's captain is coming aboard and, and Jack wants to serve a nice meal for him because they're old friends or something. And whether he's able to set out a nice table for him becomes a real, you know, so they can have sort of a bit of England at sea. It's one of the fun things about reading those novels. Hey, folks, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more Ronica Dar and Food and Literature after this. I'm curious, Jack, if you've ever prepared a recipe based on either this series or any of your other choices, because I noticed when I was preparing for this talk that so many people cook their way through books, and there are yes. many texts to this already. Yep, and there is a there's a cookbook just for it, and I think I checked it out at the library once, uh, a cookbook just for the uh, Patrick O'Brien novels. And you can make all these different dishes in it. And I went through and I was really excited about it. Some of them, the ingredients are a little odd that may be hard to come by or uh, a little outdated. I wasn't finding any Millers at uh, Whole Foods. Uh, (laughs) I couldn't get my spouse to go along with eating any of them. So I decided in the end to to forego... (laughs) (laughs) giving it a try. But I I would say that I sort of, I kind of do that when I'm traveling and it's a little bit inadvertent. I've never set out to cook my way through an author's works or, or recipes from a particular era, you know, a Jane Austen meal or anything like that. Right. Right. I hadn't until now. And that's my fifth and final choice Mm. for this show. Okay. Um, It's a memoir by Elizabeth Alexander called The Light of the World. I think I spoke about Elizabeth on our last show. So mm-hmm. testament to my my old and undying love for her as both a teacher and a writer. Yeah. This memoir is really um, a heartbreaking, beautiful piece of literature um, that she wrote after the uh, sad passing of her husband, uh, mm. who was an artist, a chef, a restaurateur, um, and I actually, again, with the, that personal connection, I had met him at his restaurant in New York. This was probably 20, 25 years ago. 
uh, when we were a few of us, uh, the former students went to the went to eat there, and we met him, and it was just all this wonderful experience. One of one of the, the most transformative experiences I think I've had in terms of being a student before I was a teacher, and, mm-hmm. and having that kind of relationship with someone, and we were all just so happy. Um, eating there and being in the presence of their love, which we, of course, from our perspective, it was like the most wonderful thing that could happen to one of the most wonderful teachers. Yeah. What kind of restaurant was it? Uh, Eritrean, actually. Mm. And it was called Cafe Adulas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to read just a bit of the passage. I, I savored, to use a, a, some pun language here, <laughs> I savored this memoir. I actually wasn't even going to finish it, but I did for this project because it's just that lovely. And I had an emotional response on every page, so I was pacing myself. But in, in here was the first one, right on page nine. There is uh, an excerpt from an interview that uh, Secret Elizabeth's husband um, has given to the New York Times uh, after he's opened the restaurant. And again, it's the it's food from Eritrea. So the critic asks, is all this authentic? Tricky word, authentic, Fikre replied. Tricky idea. Food ideas move around the world very quickly today. And if you went to Eritrea, you'd find American touches here and there. There are thousands of Eritreans living in the United States, and when they go home, they take new food ideas with them. For us, that's no more foreign than pasta once was. Azulis, the restaurant, was a gathering place where people ate food they'd never imagined, and learned about the culture and history of a country that most of them had never heard of. Fikre created legendary dishes such as shrimp barca that existed nowhere in Eritrea, but rather in his own inventive imagination. Women called for it from St. Raphael's and Yale New Haven hospitals after they delivered their babies. People said they literally dreamed of it, a fairy food that tasted like nothing else. Here is how you make it. And seamlessly, she just presents a recipe mm. for shrimp there. And it, it just something happened in that moment because I don't encounter recipes in my literature all that often. And, and it was such a great homage and a gift. So if you want to come over sometime and have some shrimp barca, I will be happy to prepare it. Ooh, sounds good. Recipes of literature, they are our signatures. A few months ago, I ran into an old uncle of mine, a Kashmiri uncle who I haven't seen in many years, and we've shared many losses since, and we're kind of bonding about those those people that we miss so much. And he later texted me, and and he said, you know, I remember your mother is a woman of steel, and your father, oh, he had a great recipe for barbecue chicken. (laughs) 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 And of course, I was like, Mom, what was his recipe? She said, that was my recipe. Uh. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, I mean, that's so much of. I was just talking to my friend recently about how you know our autobiographies and food are so informed by our love, by the people we have been with, spouses, lovers, what have you, and family. Yeah. Of course, we all have our moms in our kitchen all the time, yeah. or our grandmothers, etc. Yeah. But this uh. memoir, it's it's just. And then there's another moment where a friend of hers prepares food for them in their, you know, in their time of grief. And it's this dish of spaghetti with onions and pancetta, another mouthwatering thing. Mm. But again, when they eat, 
they are finally for once restored and able to sleep for a bit. And she shares that recipe too. I mean, these are, this is more than feeding the belly. This is, you know, sort of figuring out how to survive and live and what is good in life aside from music and, you know, food is there, music is there, love is there. They all seem to come together with little triumvirate in the text that I've chosen. Yeah. Well, we are thinking alike because I also wanted to close with my number five as an example of bonding through cooking. And I was looking at examples of food as preparation or learning how to cook to appreciate a culture. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of, of first and second and third generation stories like that, where the, the American is learning how to cook a dish of their forefathers mm-hmm. that helps them to appreciate their their mother or their grandmother or something or or just the examples where people recall those family moments and and maybe you know remember their parents or or someone who has passed away through the kind of food that they had shared and the the act of cooking the food uh big night the movie is kind of a paradigm of this, especially the last scene, which I don't want to spoil for people, but it's still kind of stunning to me how effective that scene is and with those brothers. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and Mark Anthony. You cannot forget Mark Anthony. Oh, right. <laughs> his, his role, his, the role he played in there. Oh, with the, um, yeah. oh it's so good. Yeah. My favorite I'm so glad you chose this one. <laughs> so, well, I haven't chosen the, the I didn't want to take the oh, film. Oh, you didn't so choose I, the movie? Yeah, I, all right. I just okay. wanted to mention it. Uh, but what I chose <laughs> was was along these lines. It was uh, four poems by Kevin Young, the poet. Oh. Uh, and they're, the four of them, I'll talk about two of them in detail, but the four of them are Ode to Chicken, The Preserving, Ode to Gumbo, and Ode to Pork. And they all talk about his love and appreciation of soul food, but they also kind of stand on their their own and express different things. And but they're all about you know the relationship that he has with these foods, and the relationship that it relationships that he had with uh, other people in his life, and the way that that connects to his relationship with the foods. And ode to chicken celebrates the unapologetic nature of chicken and he he has this insight that you know with other meats it's we have a cow and that gets transformed to beef and we have a pig and that gets transformed to pork but chicken is just chicken it just it's like we uh there's no transformation needed we we have the same thing (laughs) the same thing that walks around the the farmyard is the thing that we put on the plate (laughs) And he reminded me, I had this moment where uh, I was on a date with this girl and her parents and they took me out to a restaurant and I ordered the chicken and they all burst out laughing. And I didn't know why I wasn't in on the joke. And then I think it was her father said, well, it's, you know, when someone else is paying, it's always safest to order the chicken. And I smiled and laughed because I wanted to be polite. But I thought, well, I didn't know that, but I really like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to order it. Like, I, I thought it looked like the best thing on the menu. Uh, and that's kind I, of... I, I had read all these early um, sort of settler stories in Michigan, and then they 
the saddest moments in their food stories. They're like, wow, I just had a bit of bird today. Just a bit of bird. <laughs> yeah. I settled for some bird. Settled for some bird. <laughs> and But yet, because we end up eating chicken so often, for Kevin Young, the chicken is almost like this friend or someone who takes care of you uh, because the chicken has such a central position in his life. And he ends up by saying, leave me to fly for you. Like, I will sing your praises in verse. Uh, because you're mm-hmm. such a, a humble but worthy part of my life. What collection are poems in? Oh, it's called The Hungry Ear, Poems of Food and Drink. And it's an anthology of poems that he edited, but then it also included poems that he had written, four of them. And the second one uh, that I wanted to talk about after Ode to Chicken is The Preserving, which is about his family's connection to peaches. And Ode to Pork is like a... it's. It's almost erotic, Eddie. There's a line in there where he says, "Loving you may kill me, uh, <laughs> but your, but your heaven is the only one worth wanting," <laughs> which is great. But the best I think of them all, and it's become kind of famous, is "Ode to Gumbo," which is a beautiful poem about his parents and the loss of his father, his father's mother had taught his mother, and this is the great line about Gumbo, quote, how to stir its dark mirror. And the whole poem is, it's, I mean, it's a perfect description of this soup that's sitting on the stove. But it's, it's also how to stir its dark mirror. I was thinking that really is what a lot of poetry is. It's like life is this dark mirror waiting to be stirred and then settling in again for us to reflect upon in this yeah. sort of dark way. Kevin Young, he's just a he's a great poet and these four poems are are definitely kind of embody a lot of these themes that we've been talking about, especially the the themes of bonding and the way that food can unite people, cause people to reflect. Uh, something simple to focus on, but yet it's a very rich part of life. So any last thoughts before we wrap things up here? Do you have any uh, plans for lunch? <laughs> Probably going to be pancetta-oriented for this talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, well, Ronica Dyer. Oh, I, I, oh. I want to say one thing, which is about recipes as text. Maybe I said it enough. The idea of, of recipes as powerful medium to almost resurrect history or old souls. Like there is something about presenting mm. an old recipe from either a family member or a stranger and cooking it anew in modern times, in your own time. I feel like that's a sense of, that's a, a, a good substitute for time travel. You really just, you can summon up something through the food that you couldn't in another medium. Yeah, right. And I've done that. And I I would guess most people have done that where they, you know, someone comes in and says, oh, this is your great grandmother's recipe for this. And you realize, oh, I can make this. And it was a dish that, you know, she had made for my grandfather and my father hundreds and, and maybe thousands of times. And they had grown up with it, and now I get to taste it exactly like it was for them. You know, I was a very picky eater as a child, mm-hmm. and yeah, I've I've heard your mom talk about that. 
<laughs> There's a legend about one of my aunties who I was staying with her for a few days and she made uh, kima and spinach, which is mince meat and spinach. And I ate that with rice and everyone, it's legendary that that was the only food that I would eat. And to this day, it's one of my favorite dishes. But mm. recently, she sent over uh, paratas, which are breads with that same stuffing in it that she had fed me 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Mm. And Jack, it tasted exactly the same. It just sent me right back. Like I still have that exact taste memory. And thank God for her for being so consistent with yeah. that recipe. Yeah. You know, and it not was always the, like that. It was a Madeleine. <laughs> it was my Madeleine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's funny that you had that, uh, that that was your part of your identity, because I have this situation with my mother-in-law, who's always cooking. She's a wonderful cook, and she makes all these big meals for these big households full of uh, kids and now grandkids. And I have a brother-in-law who joined the family before I did. And he was kind of a picky eater. He didn't eat a lot of the things that she would make. And I just loved all of it. And so I was always eating, uh, you know, whatever she served. I was happy to have it. And I heard her once and she was describing her sons-in-law and she was saying, you know, oh, yeah. And she pointed at me and she said, you know, this is the one who will eat anything. <laughs> and it was kind of like, like, I didn't have much of an identity. You know, it wasn't my profession or where I had gone to school or, you know, anything about me. It was just, you know, she had one that she had to worry about and think about the menu and one where she could just, you know, she knew she could put anything down. And it was, uh, it's, it is kind of a, a way that you might not think that it becomes sort of a, a, I guess, a quality that people have to consider, especially when they're in charge of feeding you. Right. Well, I certainly prize that. I wish everyone was, was you. <laughs> okay. Well, let's end with you wishing that everyone was me. That might be the first time that's ever <laughs> been said by anyone in any context. Veronica <laughs> Dar, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thank you. So much fun. I'm starving now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, there we go. Are you hungry now? Hungry for food and maybe some intellectual sustenance? Let's all go read Swan's Way and take breaks for some goodies. Maybe those are madeleines, or maybe they're sandwiches. Or maybe you'd just like to sip some coffee. And speaking of coffee, why not try to win a special History of Literature mug from which to sip it? You can head on over to patreon.com slash literature and enter your name now. My thanks to Ronica for joining me today. We'll be giving away a copy of her novel Bijou Roy as well. And my thanks to you, dear listeners, for being my companions. There will always be a place for you at my table. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>